Good morning again. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 1, that'll be our scripture reading for this morning. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be some Bibles uh, on the tables just outside of the doors there. You're welcome to grab a Bible from there. And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome not only to grab one for there for the service, but you can uh, keep that Bible, write your name in the front, and then bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Before we turn to God's Word, let's pray. Our Father, we, we long to draw near you, and we long to... Uh, We long to see you. Uh, We long for that day when we will see you face to face. And yet right now we want to draw near. We want to hear from you. We pray that you would open our ears and open our minds and open our hearts by your spirit. That we would receive your word. And that you would, uh, through your word, speak the gospel to us again. That you would impress that gospel deeply on our hearts We pray, Father, that as a result, uh, we would be changed people in light of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Leviticus chapter 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord... You shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. The priests shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it in pieces with its head and its fat, and the priests shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. The priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. 
relationships can be scary. One of the scary things about relationships is you are never quite sure if your intentions or your feelings are going to be reciprocated. So, uh, you know, if I want to hang out with you, spend time with you, are you going to want to hang out with me and spend time with me? If I'm vulnerable with you, are you going to be vulnerable with me? If I love you, will you return that love? If I propose to you, will you say yes? And of course, the, the more intimate the relationship, right, the scarier it gets. And there's even the fear that if I give myself wholly to this other person, will you reciprocate or will you take advantage of me? You know, one-sided relationships are incredibly unhealthy, right? If I give all and all you do is take, that can be dehumanizing. So we have a certain fear of, of getting too close, investing too much, maybe even a healthy fear. As we look at uh, this morning at Leviticus chapter 1, it's, it's about what is called the whole burnt offering or the ascension offering. And the question I want you to ask yourself as we go through this text is, what is holding me back? You see, this offering is about committing ourselves wholly to God. And so the question is, what is holding me back? What is stopping me from wholehearted commitment to my Father in heaven? And maybe you're in a place where you've been walking with Jesus for years, and you would say, well, I, I have committed to Jesus. I'm, I'm all in. I'm fully committed to him. Okay, fine. What are the things which hinder that commitment, right? What are the things which cause you to stumble in that commitment? Or to put it differently, right? Uh, not, not just what, what is holding you back, but where are you holding back? What areas of life have you not yet given over to Jesus? Or is there something in your life that, that is still hands off for God? That you're holding back for yourself? So what, what are you holding back? What is holding you back? And where are you holding back? Well, our outline this morning, you can see it in your bulletin. Uh, on the back of the bulletin is, is drawing near, giving holy, and no holding back. First, we'll talk about drawing near. You know, we began last week uh, talking about our need for transcendence. We live our lives in the mundane, in the ordinary, in the common, in the of this world. But we were made for something more. We were made for communion with God. We live in the profane, which uh, comes from the Latin for outside the temple. But we long for the sacred. R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Holiness of God, says, In our society, religion is limited to a kind of personal therapy for people who have difficulty dealing with the difficulties of life. Ours is a profane existence with no sense of the presence of the holy. But people have always looked for a window or door to the transcendent. We seek a threshold that will lead us over the border from the profane to the sacred. Even within the confines of a closed universe, people seek some place that will serve as a, part, as a point of access to the transcendent. We feel an aching void that screams to be filled by the holy. We long for holy space. In the book of Genesis, we find where that longing came from. 
We, we talked about this uh, last week, but let me just recap, right? Humanity was created to dwell with a holy God in a holy place. But because of human sin and rebellion, humanity was cast out of God's presence. We became estranged from God. And Adam and Eve were barred from entering back into the Garden of Eden. Ever since, we have been longing, to quote Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, to get ourselves back to the garden. God has been working to that end as well. When God brought Israel up out of Egypt, he gave as his reason, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. See, God wants his people to, to know him and to dwell with him, to be their God and for them to be his people. So God says again and again in the scriptures, I will be your God and you will be my people. And it's as if he's saying, I, I will be your husband and you will be my bride. We will live together and we will know one another and we will enjoy intimacy and, and the fellowship that I intended for us to have in the garden from the start. Of course, as we read through Genesis and we read on into Exodus, we have a problem when the story of the Exodus ends. In the very end of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, uh, the people have built God's house. They built the tent. They built the tabernacle where God is going to dwell in their midst. And God comes and he dwells in their midst. Exodus 40 verse 34 says this, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God is there, right? He's manifested his presence right there in the tabernacle, right in the midst of Israel. But verse 35 goes on and says, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God has set up his house in the midst of his people, but his glory and his splendor and his holiness kept the people at distance kept them at arm's length. And the people might have been wondering, God, you know, you said that we would dwell with you. You promised intimacy. And now not even Moses, right? Moses, who ascended Mount Sinai, who was enveloped in the cloud and in the fire on the mountain, not even Moses can come into your presence. It's as if God comes and he moves into the Israelite neighborhood only to hang a sign on the door that says no trespassing, private property, keep off, trespassers will be prosecuted. And that's the way the book of Exodus ends. Which brings us to the book of Leviticus and Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1 verse 1 says this, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, God spoke, God called, God is now dwelling in their midst and he calls to Moses from the tent of meeting, from right there in their midst. And verse two goes on to say, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. It, it seems like a, a mundane verse. But it's kind of sudden, isn't it? Because one minute, uh, not even Moses can enter the tabernacle. And we turn the page in the Bible, literally, and, and God is inviting his people into his living room. 
And uh, you know, this, this verse, verse 2, that uses the word offering. And the Hebrew word for the word offering is the word korban. Korban. And uh, the, the verbal form of that word, I know this is technical, but just bear with me for a minute. The verbal form of the word korban has the sense of, uh, it means to draw near. Right? The verb means to draw near or to, to bring near. And uh, so then this word Corbin, offering, has the sense of that which is brought near. Okay? So the verb, to draw near, the, the noun, that which is brought near. And uh, verse 2 has this word in the verb or noun form four times. Okay? Four times. So uh, that you could read it like this, though this would be a little pedantic and we wouldn't translate it like this, but it, it, you could read it like this. When any of you brings near... That which is brought near to the Lord, you shall bring near that which is brought near of the livestock from the herd or from the flock. And you see the emphasis there in that one verse, verse 2, God is inviting his people to come near. Right? If any of you bring near that which is brought near, you shall bring near that which is brought near from the livestock, from the herd or from the flock. God is emphasizing that his people are welcome to come into his presence. Not just come near, but to come near through an offering. Through an offering. Well, we're going to look at the, the burnt offering this morning, or what's sometimes called the ascension offering. And uh, we're going to look at it in two parts, really. First, we're going to look at all of those things which are common to all of the other offerings. Sort of sets the stage for the next seven chapters in Leviticus. Uh, but then we're going to look at what is unique about the burnt offering. So first we're going to look at sort of drawing near in general. And then we're going to look at giving holy, giving ourselves holy to our God. First, sort of drawing near in general. You know, every uh, bloody offering, at least in Leviticus, involves at least six things. You know, that's a lot of things, but they're, they're all important. So six things. It involves the selection of an animal, uh, the approach with this animal, uh, the identification with the animal, the, the slaughter of the animal, the presentation of the animal's blood, and then the burning of the animal's carcass. Each of those steps is important. I know this is completely foreign to us, right? Because we didn't bring any animals this morning. Uh, you didn't go out to your flock or to your herd and pick just the right one before you came here so that you could bring it and slaughter it before me and I could burn it on an altar. Uh, so it's a little bit odd to us, but it's important, right? It's in God's word. And so let's try to figure out what, what does any of this have to do with us and ultimately with Jesus and his grace. Imagine you're an Israelite. You're coming to God's house. You're coming to draw near. You come to bring an offering. What do you do? The first thing you do is you select an animal, right? And it, it has to be, according to Leviticus 1, it has to be a bull or a sheep or a goat or a turtle dove or a pigeon. Only certain animals could be offered up. Why? I don't know. I, I don't know. These are all clean animals in Leviticus's scheme. We'll get to that. Uh, but it's not every and any clean animal. It's just these few. But what is maybe more significant is what is said about the animal. Whether it's a bull or whether it's a sheep or whether it's a goat, it has to be without blemish. Without blemish. And uh, the, the word for without blemish is also the word for blameless. In Hebrew. So Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. 
Abraham was called to walk before God and be blameless. And so this idea of bringing an animal that is without blemish is it's kind of a metaphor for the moral character of the animal. It's without blemish, therefore blameless before God. But maybe most significant is Psalm 15. Psalm 15 asks a question. It says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Psalm 24, same question. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in the holy place? Right? Who's allowed to come into God's presence? Who can draw near? Who can come into the tabernacle? And Psalm 15 answers that question by saying, he who walks blamelessly. It's the unblemished one. That's the one who can enter into God's presence. Only the blameless, only the unblemished can approach God. Hey, hold on to that. What happens next? Well, you approach, right? You come to the temple. Once you picked out this unblemished animal, you bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And, and this is the goal, right? You want to draw near to God. You want to be close to him. So you want, you want to come into his courts. You want to enter into God's house. So you bring an animal to the to the entrance of the tabernacle, which aptly here is called the tent of meeting, right? Because it's the place where God meets with his people. So you select an animal and you bring it to the tent and then you lay your hand on the head of the offering. Verse three uh, picks up. It says, he shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. This gesture, right, of laying one's hand on the head of the animal, it, it really, it, it simply means that the worshiper is identifying with this animal. Because of this identification, right, though the worshiper is blameworthy, right, sinful, broken, rebellious, you can be accepted because of the blamelessness of this animal. Right, to put it differently, as the blameless animal is, uh, as the blameless offering is accepted, you would be accepted in and through this substitute. It's taking your place, thus making atonement, meaning that through the substitute, right, a reconciliation takes place. The worshiper is now at one or at peace with God because of the blamelessness of this substitute. Here's what's going on, right? The worshiper, right? You, me, whoever, Joe, Israelite, right? Is not blameless, right? We're, we're not unblemished. We're, we're broken. We're sinful. We're rebellious. But the animal is, right? The animal is without blemish, at least symbolically, right? It's physically without blemish, which stands for a, a spiritual blamelessness. Though the worshiper himself could not sojourn in God's tent or ascend the hill of the Lord, the blameless substitute can. The blameless makes the blameworthy acceptable. That's what's going on here. So the worshiper would lay his hands on the head of the animal. He identifies with it. Lay one hand, actually. On the head of the animal, he identifies with it and then slaughters it, right? The blameless dies in the place of the blameworthy. The blood is then thrown at the sides of the altar. And then the body of the animal is burned up on the altar, Verse 9 says, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Here's actually what's most surprising. I know all of it's foreign to us. So how can any of it be most surprising? But here's what's most surprising. Clearly, you have this blameless animal, 
dying in the place of a blameworthy person. All right, that makes sense to us, doesn't it? Right, That's pointing forward to Jesus in the New Testament, where, where we're told Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Right? We get that. When the animal is slaughtered, it's put to death for the sin, for the blameworthiness of the worshiper. What then, though, is the significance of the burning? These kinds of questions keep me up at night, right? Why did they put it on the altar? They've already slaughtered it. It's already dead. It's already been punished, so to speak. It's already taken the place of the worshiper. Why burn it? What is the significance of the burning? In all the offerings, something is burned on the altar. What's going on when the thing is burned? It, it, it's turned into smoke. It, it, it becomes a pleasing aroma to the Lord. What's that all about? Well, here's, here's what's going on. It'll take just a minute to explain, but the, the whole sacrificial system works by analogies and identifications, right? Uh, we said before that the tabernacle is kind of a portable Sinai, right? Where God met with his people on top of Sinai. Now he gives them this tabernacle where he can meet with them every day. It's kind of a portable Eden, right? Where God once dwelt with his people in Eden, now he's dwelling right in his people's midst in the tabernacle. The altar also, the altar, this big bronze square thing, is also like Sinai, right? As Israel was to gather around the mountain, so Israel gathers around the tabernacle, lives around the tabernacle, and so you, the Israelite worshiper, gather around this altar, Remember, Sinai is the place where God met with Moses and uh, the mountain was covered in fire and in smoke. And now we have the altar where the fire burns and the smoke is rising up into heaven. And God says in Exodus about the altar of burnt offering, he says, there I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel right there at the altar of burnt offering. So coming to this altar was like each individual Israelite's mountaintop experience. Right? They're drawing near to God. And the fire is the fire of God's holiness, just like it was on the mountain. And God's holiness transforms this animal into smoke. So the animal ascends into heaven, enters into communion with God as it were. God smells it, and it's pleasing to him. I know maybe, maybe I just lost you. So let, let me put this a different way. Remember, another name for the burnt offering is the ascension offering. We remember Psalm 24, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And now we have this ascension offering. And the blameless animal is identified with the worshiper, dies in his place, and then ascends in smoke to the Lord, the whole animal, the ascension offering, the whole animal ascending in smoke to the Lord as a pleasing aroma to him. And because of his, this identification, it's as if the worshiper himself goes up into the heavens and is pleasing to the Father. Okay, maybe that's all a little too weird, smoke going up, God smelling, what's, what's all that about? But, but think about the gospel for a second. Just think about the gospel. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. We get that part. That he might bring us to God. Jesus died. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven to the Father's right hand. And think about that great passage in Ephesians that we, we quote all the time. That passage in Ephesians. You know, it starts out by talking about how uh, our deadness in sin 
And it goes on to say, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, through our vicarious sacrifice, through Jesus, we have entered into the holy places by faith. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 says. That when you believe in Jesus, when you're united to him, he raises you up into the heavenly places. And so, in light of Ephesians 2, Colossians 3 would be another place. We could ask, where are you right now? Well, you're sitting in a chair in the Y, right? That's where you are right now. But, but through Jesus, through the blameless one who died in your place, you are ascended into the holy place. You are seated with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. That's what the New Testament teaches. That's what Leviticus 1 teaches. And here's the question for us, right? You know, we have, some, we have this longing for uh, some connection with the transcendent. We want some connecting point, some window. What Leviticus 1 teaches, what the whole Bible teaches, is that if you want to be reunited with the holy God, you know, maybe you understand that it's your sin that's keeping you far off. Maybe you even feel that because of your sin, because of something in your past, because of some desire in the present, maybe you feel like God could never, ever accept me. I could never be acceptable in his sight. There's no way I could come into God's presence. But Leviticus is teaching that if you trust in Christ, the blameless one, if you identify yourself with him through faith, not only is your sin removed, But because Christ is pleasing to the Father, you become pleasing to the Father. Because of your identification with Christ, your union with Him, you are welcomed into the heavenly courts of God. Our door to the transcendent, our threshold into the holy place, is Christ Himself, the spotless Lamb of God. Because of Him, we are accepted into the Father's house. That's what verse 3 says. That he shall bring this animal to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. Jesus came before the Father, that we might be accepted before the Lord. All right, that's all about drawing near through this substitute, through this offering in general. That kind of sets the stage, and, and the rest will go a little more quickly. Let's look at the burnt offering itself, giving ourselves wholly to God. This whole burnt offering or this ascension offering is different from the other offerings in that the whole animal is offered on the altar. And uh, two things stand out in in this offering. One is, is giving oneself to God is costly. And two, it must be done completely. It's costly because for each of the offerings, right, the offerer has to bring an animal without blemish. And, And think about what would the temptation be? Right? The temptation is to bring an animal that's, that's blemished, right? Uh, an animal that uh, maybe isn't going to give you as much meat or an animal that isn't going to give you as much wool, an animal that is diseased or sickly or soon to die. Why would that be your temptation? That would be the temptation because losing that animal will cost you less. And God says, no, no, bring, bring me your best. To give oneself to God is costly, must be done completely. The point of the ascension offering is for the offer to come to God and say, God, I give you my whole self, my whole self completely. 
I hold nothing back. I'm yours. And so the whole animal, which represents the offerer, right? He identified himself with it by placing his hand on it. This, he, the whole animal goes on to the altar. The whole animal is given over to God. It's the worshiper saying, my whole self, God, I'm giving to you everything. I'm not holding back even one little part. It's all yours. And think, Jesus in the New Testament asks nothing less, does he, than this costly, complete offering of oneself. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Your whole self. Paul uh, calls us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. Surely Paul doesn't mean offer a part of yourself, a little bit of yourself to God, just, you know, a little bit of yourself to God each day. No, offer your whole self as a living sacrifice. Offering ourselves to God is costly. It must be done completely without reserve. That's the way of Christ. That's the way of communion through Christ. We give ourselves wholly to our God. This is what makes sense, by the way, of, of all those statements in the Old Testament about how much God hates sacrifice. I mean, did you ever wonder, right, why, why does God spend all of this time commanding sacrifice and then he turns around and says he hates it? It's a little frustrating, right? It's like, God, you told me to do this and now you're saying don't do this. Well, which is it? What do you want? And you know those places. Isaiah chapter 1 says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Or Jeremiah 6, where God says, Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. That must have been horrifying, right? The whole point of the sacrifice was that I would become acceptable, and God is saying, No, your burnt offerings are not acceptable to me. What's up? I mean, God, you commanded these things. Yes, but each offering was meant to be an expression of the heart offered up to God. The ascension offering is meant to be costly and, com and a complete giving oneself over to God. When the offering is not that, it becomes a sham. Maybe you remember Saul. You know, Saul was commanded to devote certain people to destruction and, and even their livestock. Saul was supposed to kill it all. But Saul keeps the livestock and he says, oh, it's for a sacrifice to the Lord. What does Samuel say to him? The, the, the prophet comes to Saul and says, to obey is better than sacrifice. Why? Because the point of sacrifice is to demonstrate your devotion to God. If you're not obeying him, you're not devoted to him. And so the sacrifice becomes a sham. Or maybe you remember David. David is this man after God's own heart, right? And he, his sin caused a plague to come on all of Israel and thousands died. That's the man after God on heart, God's own heart. And uh, David is told to build an altar and perform sacrifices to avert the plague. And one of David's loyal subjects uh, offers to give him the oxen for the burnt offering. He says, here, take the oxen, take the ox cart for the fire, take the oxen for the sacrifice. And David refuses to take it without paying. He refused to offer something to God that cost him nothing. Right? The offering must be costly. It's meaningless if it's not costly because it's supposed to be an expression of a heart willing to give all to God. 
Or think in the New Testament, think about Ananias and Sapphira. They're in the book of Acts. And, and uh, they wanted to impress their fellow believers. And so they sold some property and they brought the money to church in front of everyone. And uh, they said, here's all the money we made. It's for God. We're giving it to him. But they kept some of it back for themselves. And the problem wasn't keeping some of the money. The problem was lying and saying that they were giving it all when they were really holding back. And Peter says, look, the property was yours before you sold it. The money was yours. Why did you have to lie? God wants our sacrifice to be an expression of the devotion of our hearts. But sacrifice often becomes a means of show, right? An attempt just to appear devoted when our hearts are far from God. But God wants our hearts. He wants our whole hearts. He he doesn't want half-hearted followers. He wants us to offer our whole selves as a living sacrifice upon his altar in lives of costly service to him. So, where are you holding back? What areas of life are still hands-off for Jesus? Are you saying, Jesus, you can have this part of my life and that part of my life, but this is mine and I'm going to hold on to this. It may not even be sinful. It may just be something that you're saying, I just cherish this thing and I don't want Jesus to mess this up in my life, so I'm going to hold on to this. He can have Sunday mornings, but not this. Or maybe it is sinful. Maybe it's some sin that you cherish in your heart and you're saying, I've stopped a lot of things, but I'm going to hold on to this one. I'm not going to back off of this. What are you still holding on to? What's holding you back? What's holding you back from saying, God, I'm yours. Do with me as you will. God, I'm yours. Every part of my life, Jesus, it all belongs to you. God, I'm in. Not my will, but your will be done. What is holding you back? You know what I think holds us back most often? It's, it's fear. Right? It's, we're afraid. Uh, lots of different fears, actually. We're afraid of what people will think. If I give my all to God, right, if I, if I devote myself entirely to him, what, what are people going to say? Will people think I'm some kind of a religious nut? You know, when I first became a Christian, I had an experience, and I think it's shared by others. I've heard the, the same story from other people. You come to Christ for the first time, and you start loving the scriptures, and you read the Bible all the time, and you start talking about Jesus, and you start giving up certain sinful habits, and somebody you love comes up to you, and they're really concerned because they think you've joined a cult, and you say, well, no, 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 it's okay. I didn't join a cult. I just love Jesus, right? That's all. I just, want to, I just want to give my life to him. But sometimes we're afraid, right? We're afraid of what people might think. People we don't know, people we do know, the loved ones that are closest to us, we're afraid of standing out. Maybe we're afraid of missing out, missing out on the fun of life, right? Uh, Sometimes we hold back because we want to keep one foot in the world and one foot in the church, as it were, right? I I want to serve God, but I have these other things that I want to do in life. I want to serve God, but but that immoral thing, whatever it is, it just looks like so much fun. Sometimes we're afraid of losing ourselves. You know, if I become a Christian, do, do I have to stop being me? Do I have to start dressing like a Christian or talking like a Christian or acting like a Christian, whatever that means? When I first got married, um, my mother-in-law, who happens to be here this morning, 
uh, and probably doesn't want me pointing her out. Uh, she, she bought me a pair of khaki pants and a blue shirt, and I was jokingly told that that was the uniform for all the guys in the family. Right? And, and look, I'm still wearing it. Khaki pants, <laughs> blue shirt. Our, our fear is, right? our fear is, if I'm going to wholly commit myself to God, do I have to conform to some, do I have to, do I have to stop being me? Do I have to give up my individuality? See, we're afraid. Or maybe we're even afraid of being taken advantage of. You know, we started out this morning talking about relationships and, and one side, one-sided relationships are where you give everything and the other person only takes, right? It's unhealthy, it's demeaning, it's dehumanizing. And maybe you wonder, if I give everything to God... Am I going to lose my humanity where there be no reciprocity? Of course, the answer to every single one of these fears is the gospel. Jesus came because our hearts are divided. We are not blameless, but blameworthy. Uh, We love God a a little, sometimes, maybe, but we love the world a lot. Our hearts are blemished. Jesus came as the blameless one in the place of the blameworthy. He came and was identified with us by taking on our humanity. He came to be our substitute, to die in our place, to make atonement. And then he rose from the dead to present himself to the Father in that heavenly tabernacle on our behalf. And then Jesus poured out his spirit on us to consecrate us as as little tabernacles, right? Jesus is right now performing, transforming our hearts by the fire of his spirit to make us fit for communion with the Father. And all of this means, actually, that we, we we no longer have to fear. Think about it. We don't need to fear what people might think of us because Jesus has secured the Father's delight in us. We now uh, identify with Jesus through faith, right? We don't lay our hand on his head, but we believe in him. And when we do, through his death and resurrection, we become a pleasing aroma to the Father. The Father delights in us through Jesus, our sacrifice. It's true, if you give yourself over to a life of serving God, people may look at you funny. But the Father will delight in you as a pleasing aroma, Because of the perfect offering of Jesus. He offers himself up, as Leviticus says, so we might be accepted, not with men, but with God. That we might be accepted into God's courts, into God's house. Second, we we don't need to fear missing out. Because Jesus secures for us a greater happiness, doesn't he? You know, it's true, again, if you commit to following Jesus, if you give your whole self to him, you will give up certain earthly pleasures. It's true. Um, uh, You know, hopefully you're not going to go out and have illicit affairs. Uh, You're not going to strive uh, to, you're going to strive to practice self-control when it comes to food or drink. You're going to give up indulging in certain forms of entertainment that encourage your sinful heart. But that's the way life works. Giving up smaller pleasures for greater ones. That's all of life. Uh, You know, you give up the pleasure of sleeping in so you can go to work and get the pleasure of a paycheck. 
You give up the pleasure of binge-watching your favorite show on Netflix so you can study and get the pleasure of an A on your final exam. No pleasure in life comes without the cost of another pleasure. That's the way life works. We have to decide. And here's the pleasure that Jesus offers his people, the pleasure of seeing God face to face. Jesus says the pure in heart will see God, not the impure in heart, not the divided in heart, but the pure in heart. And you will receive the pleasure for which you were created. The pleasure that is the deepest desire of our soul. You will know the transcendent. You will experience the holy. You will see God face to face. That's our hope. Now, you may be thinking, oh, yeah, when does that happen? I mean, I feel like the deepest desires of my soul have not been satisfied up to this point. And I've been coming to church a long time. Well, it's true. We we walk by faith and not by sight. That's what the Bible teaches. We walk by faith and not by sight. We have the sure promise of seeing God face to face. We get foretastes of that now, right? I mean, when, you know, God moves our heart as we read his word, giving us immense joy. Or, Or maybe there's a time when God brings us to tears in a particularly meaningful time of prayer. Or when we gather with his people and we sense his spirit. Little snippets, little foretaste. Not the norm, right? Not the everyday. Those little moments, now and then. But it's just an appetizer. It's an appetizer of things to come. It's a foretaste of something more. You don't need to fear what people will think because the Father delights in you through Jesus. You don't need to fear missing out on what the world has to offer because Jesus secures for us better things. He promises us a room in the tabernacle at his return, dwelling forever with the Father in the Father's house. Third, we don't need to fear losing our life. We don't need to fear losing our life. Think about it. Jesus demonstrates and then promises that only if we lose our lives will we actually find them. He he demonstrates that by his offering himself up wholly on the cross, giving himself wholly over to the Father, and then rising from the dead. Was Jesus somehow less himself in the resurrection? No, no, right? He was much more, right? Uh, in, In fact, Jesus says, if we hold on to our lives, if we hold on to our lives, then we are in imminent danger of losing them. If anyone wishes to save his life, he will lose it. But if anyone loses his life for Jesus' sake, then he will find it. See, only only when we give ourselves wholly over to God do we actually find ourselves. As long as we're holding back, we're we're actually less of ourselves than we could be. You don't have to fear that you will be less of yourself if you give yourself wholly over to God. You will be more, right? God made you who you are, right? Everything good about you comes from Him. When we offer ourselves up to God, He purifies that so that we become more of who He intended us to be, not less. Finally, we don't need to fear lack of reciprocity. God is not like some kind of abusive spouse or abusive friend who just takes advantage of people's commitment and uses them only to move on to the next person. In fact, everything that we have been talking about shows that Jesus gave himself wholly for us first. He gave himself wholly upon the cross for us. 
Uh, We don't have to ask, will God reciprocate my love, my offering, my commitment? Because he's already acted. We're reciprocating his. We don't have to fear. Now we can just be free. To give ourselves wholly to our Father, that our lives might be a pleasing aroma to him. A sweet-smelling sacrifice to our God. Jesus gave himself wholly in our place in order to enable our wholehearted offering of ourselves up to him. Is that hard to hear? Is that a struggle to do? Look to the cross. Look to God's offering up of his son fully for you, the blameless for the blameworthy, until it melts your heart and calms your fears and drives you to say, I'm all in God. Here I am, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he gave himself up for us. That we might now take up our crosses and follow him. Father, move in our hearts to that end. Calm our fears. Encourage us with the gospel and strengthen us to give ourselves, all of ourselves, every moment to you for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.